everybody. It's Mittens with another episode of Supernatural George. Today we're going to be talking about one of the more straightforward episodes of Supernatural, considering there's not actually anything supernatural involved in it really at all, except they're interpreting it as supernatural even when it's not, just because most of the time there is some sort of supernatural element to the things that they look into. This just happens to be one of the few times when they're wrong. (laughs) This is season one, episode 15, The Benders. It's loosely based on, or at least the concept is based on the short story, The Most Dangerous Game, which is about people who hunt people. There's also, of course, deliverance references, and it is loosely based around a real family in the frontier Midwest in Kansas in the 1870s called the Benders, who weren't actually, none of them were actually named Bender, and they weren't blood-related, but they were sort of a gang of murderers, murderers, (laughs) who took shelter together out in the prairie in Kansas and took in lodgers under the pretense of being a safe place for them to stop for the night or whatever. And they would entrap people, kill them, steal their belongings and whatever, and leave their bodies in the basement. So this was just how they funded their criminal enterprise where they didn't have to go out and rob people. They just let people come to them (laughs) I'll link to a couple articles about the Bender family because it's really kind of creepy. But this episode was written again by John Scheiben, who we have talked about in the past. He's written some great episodes, great characterization episodes for Sam and Dean, where we learn a lot about them and, you know, how they react to things. He puts them through a lot of difficult circumstances. And this episode is, of course, no exception. And it is the second and final episode directed by Peter Ellis, who unfortunately passed away before season or at the beginning of when they were filming season two. So this this was his final episode of Supernatural. I feel like other than everything I just mentioned, that since there is no like supernatural element to this, it's not a myth arc episode. There's nothing furthers the overall plot of the season in it that it's probably best to just talk about it as straightforward as the episode actually is as it unfolds and then come to our takeaway at the end rather than me trying to set up anything. There's nothing really to set up. There's no odd supernatural occurrences or whatever. It's mostly just the fallout of reality on them. And that's also important to their characters as well, because this is the first episode where Dean is confronted with the need to contact the police because he's concerned for Sam's safety. Sam's disappeared and Dean needs to contact the police. But how does he go about doing that, considering he's legally dead now? This is the first time that that's really become a serious issue for him. You know, they have fake IDs for so many things, but when real Dean actually needs to find real Sam, fake IDs aren't going to cut it. 
So they really need to use their real identities and it makes life very, very difficult for Dean. Luckily, he finds a sympathetic deputy that understands this case and understands exactly the position that Dean's in. And we'll talk about her when we get there. That said, let's go directly to the show. The then segment is back to the standard, usual, take your brother outside as fast as you can, then segment that gives us nothing new since I think Bloody Mary is the most recent clips in that segment. So it lets you know right off the bat that there's nothing moving substantially forward in this episode. This is a stop and take a breather moment episode, like in the most broad possible sense. I mean, they, they don't even have to deal with a ghost or a reaper or, you know, there's there's nothing in this one. There's no old God haunting an apple orchard. There's no, you know, it's just people. That said, we open the episode in Hibbing, Minnesota, which, of course, is a town we all recognize because that's the home of Donna. Well, we won't know that until season 10 but or season 9, but, of course, Sheriff Donna is, she was not involved in this case, unfortunately, but I like to think she took over for this sheriff in this episode, like, after that poor woman had a breakdown or whatever. <laughs> Hopefully she's doing okay. But, yep, Hibbing, Minnesota is the town, which is apparently like a murder hotspot. So I think Donna probably cleaned things up there. Like, not a murder hotspot. It was like disappearances. It was, there were more disappearances in this county than any other county in the state, Dean says at one point when they're looking into the case at first. But, the cold open opens on a little boy watching Godzilla versus Mothra and hearing a strange noise outside and seeing someone disappear, like a growling, grinding, he thinks it's a monstery noise. Well, because he's watching Godzilla versus Mothra. He's in the monster state of mind, but if I heard that noise, I might think monster too. Now, actually, I'd think that that guy needs a fan belt, but <laughs> whatever. Little kid doesn't know that. So out the window, the boy sees a man like crouch down to look underneath a car because he hears a strange noise too. And he watches the man get pulled under the car and snatched up and taken away by the monster making the whining growl. Sam and Dean come dressed as Minnesota State Police to interview the kid. The mother is dismissive of the boy's complaints that it was a monster but the man is still missing. The guy still was taken by something. Sam and Dean take this information to a bar called Kugel's Keg. Dean plays darts while Sam looks up what potential monsters could be snatching people. Sam thinks it could be some sort of supernatural being that snatches people, but they usually snatch people from their beds, not parking lots. Although I can't imagine why they wouldn't snatch people in parking lots. I mean, it's a lot more convenient than breaking into people's houses, I suppose. This is another instance where Sam, they reference something in the journal that's never expanded on or explained again, that apparently John had marked this area out as the hunting grounds of a, quote, phantom attacker, which is supposedly specifically some sort of very well-defined supernatural being 
that has many different types of creatures filed under that category but we never hear about this category of monster again something that attacks people in their beds i don't know what other beings might fall under this heading label they, they describe a couple spring-heeled jacks phantom gassers and we never learn exactly what these creatures are but apparently they are something supernatural that hunters understand and have categorized but we never hear of them again in canon so let's just move on it's just one more instance of john knew something about an area suspected some supernatural activity and yet never bothered to investigate or actually carry out the hunt so it's just more information and that he left hanging which apparently he does a lot (laughs) so much for john the spectacular most thorough hunter out there this is one scene though in kugel's keg after sam is like we should get an early start and dean's teasing him they know he wants to have another round he's playing darts he's having a good time Sam's like, no, we're going to go to this motel I saw and get an early night and start interviewing more people in the morning because they don't have any leads on what supernatural monster this might be snatching people because, well, we all know it's not a supernatural monster snatching people, but Sam is done at the bar and Dean's like, well, I'll meet you outside and then steps into the men's room that men's has been illuminated in neon lights above his head the entire time. Sam comes outside, he finds underneath the, a car, he hears a strange noise. He bends down and looks directly under the car, only to find a cat hissing at him, which he finds funny, except then he gets snatched. And it's like, dude, Sam, you really crouch down, like, literally right next to the car. If you suspect there's something creepy under the car, wouldn't you, like, stand back a few feet? I mean, that's just me, but maybe I'm just overly paranoid. I don't know. I'm also not being written into a television drama with suspense as an element in it. So (laughs) thank God. But Sam gets snatched. And then Dean comes outside looking for him a while later and asks some people, hey, have you seen my brother, the guy who was here and describes him? But Dean uses the phrase in the last hour. So like how long was Dean in that bar after Sam came outside? Was Dean just sticking him around and like killing an hour at the bar and thinking, you know, if Sam's really all that pissed off or whatever, he can take a nap in the car or he can come back in and get me. He's a big boy, you know, whatever we, it's never explained what that time lag was, but there are so many theories because it's technically a fan fiction gap. What was Dean doing in there in this bar full of men playing pool and darts? And it's like a biker bar. It's not it's not the kind of place where you go to pick up chicks. So what was he doing in there in the men's room for an hour? It's just one of those interesting shots that that gives you room to interpret Dean's behavior and Dean's actions as not normal for a heterosexual male. It's never questioned, it's never prodded at, but this is one of those early spaces that gives you freedom to interpret the text as, well, Dean was clearly hooked up with some guy in the in the men's room. That 
is a viable and legitimate read of the narrative here. Because where else would he have been in there for an hour? Maybe he just lost track of time having another drink or playing darts or pool. But we don't see that. We see the last thing we see is him going into the men's room. So when we talk about like the polysemy on the show, the there's multiple different ways to interpret things and that they always left room for this particular interpretation regarding Dean and his sexuality, that it runs through the entire series and that it was heavily established even in season one. So it's not just people reading into it later. Like you can go back and find meta written when this episode aired that also prods at that and goes, hey, what was he doing in the men's room for an hour? This is not something that's like a new thing that people have been only picking out now years later. This has been going on since the beginning. So Sam has been taken by the whining growly monster. It's pretty obvious when Dean comes out that there was a ratty ass camper van in the scene that the little boy saw at the window, there was a ratty ass camper van parked up next to the Kugel's keg when they first went in, when Sam came out. And now that ratty ass camper van is gone. The cat that had startled Sam un- that was under the car is now sitting on top of the car. And the journal and all the papers that Sam was researching are just sitting out on the trunk of the Impala. The door is unlocked. As Dean's looking around for Sam, he notices that there are traffic cameras that are connected up to the county traffic monitoring system mounted on a pole right outside the bar. So he goes to the sheriff's department next morning. And this is when he is confronted with the fact that he has no identity of a living person. So he has to get creative in how he approaches the sheriff he can't just walk in and go hey i'm dean winchester and my brother sam's been abducted because dean winchester is a a felon a wanted felon and b dead so like not really wanted anymore but he's got a string of murders pinned to his name and he's dead right theoretically anyway he can't exactly present himself as himself And that kind of is a problem for him for the rest of the series, because even the couple times they do get their identities back in mysterious circumstances, they end up losing them again. It's like they're they're not even allowed to hold on to their own identities through most of the series. And yes, that is another thing that pisses me off about the series finale is that Dean never even got to reclaim his own identity. (laughs) Let alone a life for himself. He never even got to be able to live freely as Dean Winchester at all, really. And he should have been able to. I mean, maybe they wouldn't ever have reclaimed their legal identities, and but they could have reclaimed their lives and just lived for themselves for once. And nope, he wasn't allowed that. Anyway, before I get too far off topic on the series finale, which I'm sure I will gripe about again repeatedly and continuously, um... <laughs> Let's go back to our monster of the week, which is, appropriately, humans. So after Dean introduces himself to the sheriff, I need to take a pause here because this is kind of interesting ID. This is, we see on the sheriff's computer screen as she brings up Samuel Winchester, 
born May 2nd, 1983, place of birth, birth, Lawrence, Kansas. The physical description is just interesting. It describes Sam as six foot four, 180 to 190 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. And they bring up Dean as a linked, relevant person of interest related to Sam Born January 24th, 1979, died March 7th, 2006 in St. Louis. But it also describes Dean as six foot four, 175 pounds with brown hair and green eyes. I just always thought it was odd that they listed them both as six foot four because Dean is clearly not six foot four. (laughs) Maybe he lied on his driver's license or who knows? It's also interesting to note that it says they have no distinctive markings or tattoos because back then they didn't have any tattoos. The character of Dean, when they were first starting the show, they tossed back and forth the idea of him having a lot of tattoos, like a lot of tattoos, not necessarily visible with with all of his clothes on, but like protective markings and sigils and symbols and stuff like that. They wanted to make him seem like the outsider character and yet he's the centralizing character he's the one who the plot congeals around because sam who started off as the normal character the one who in the first drafts of the pilot script didn't even believe in the supernatural just thought his father was crazy comes a long way to finally well no sam's the one with the demon blood and you know It's just interesting that how these characters were reframed from how they were originally created with the belief that these characters were going to be a certain way and how vastly different they ended up being in canon. So I always appreciate that little reminder that even in this early part of the series, long before they ever had the anti-possession tattoos, that Dean was theoretically planned to have many tattoos and because of production cost and the frustrating ordeal of sitting every day to have makeup apply tons of tattoos to somebody they decided to just forego that and have Dean be perfectly untattooed it's interesting how that affects his character overall that he never really does become the outsider type character he's always our point of view character He's the relatable one of Sam and Dean. Much as I adore Sam, I cannot relate to having demon blood powers. And <laughs> even when Dean is told that, you know, he's he goes to hell, he's the vessel of Michael, I, I just cannot relate to having psychic powers and abilities and magical powers and abilities. It's just not something I find relatable at all. That's like in season 10 tries to shift to Sam's point of view. And it, thank goodness it was only for a few episodes, but like even when Dean had the mark of Cain, he lost some of that narrative relatability through it. it. They presented it more as like an internal struggle with his own darkness and depression. And so on that level, we can relate to it just like, On that level, we can relate to Sam's struggle against the demon blood and the powers and everything. But it's it's difficult to relate to supernatural problems as, you know, normal human beings in a world that doesn't have supernatural powers. (laughs) 
back to the episode, which, I mean, I feel like this is an interesting episode of all of them to discuss the essential humanity of our characters here that in an episode where there is no supernatural, perfect time to talk about their humanity. I suppose Dina's really lucky that there was no photo in the database this sheriff was looking up because otherwise he would have been instantly recognized. It's funny that he describes Dean as talking about Dean in the third person to the sheriff, that he was the black sheep of the family and then added on handsome though, (laughs) talking about himself, (laughs) but that had to be very weird for him talking about, himself in the third person as a dead person who was also wanted for multiple murders. So the sheriff hands Dean a clipboard with a missing persons report form to fill out and refuses to let Dean come look at the county traffic cams with her. Dean's like, no, you don't understand. Your county has more missing persons reports. Do any of those people ever come back? And she gives him a look like, what do you think? And Dean's like, well, Sam's coming back because Dean is responsible for him. He feels responsible for him like a parent would. And the sheriff hears what he's saying and looks like she's about to cooperate. Before we find out what happens there, we cut over to Sam waking up in a really dank cage like an animal, meeting his cage mate in the next cage over the man who was taken in the cold open. So poor Dean has to go by the name Greg in this because he's stolen the police identification of Officer Greg Washington. The detective comes out after having looked through the traffic cams and brings him a bunch of photos of the camper van that we'd seen at Kugel's Keg, leaving right after Sam apparently disappeared. Dean hears a rust bucket of a van drive past, making a similar whining growl noise to the noise described by the boy in the cold open. So Dean thinks, well, this is probably what the noise was. It was this awful, wretched, broke down old camper van, and that's what took Sam. So monster identified, but could still be a monster driving the monstrous truck, but Dean is pretty sure that they found their vehicle anyways that might lead them to a person. So back in Sam's cage, his cage partner, mate, friend, dude in the next cage is woken up and Sam is surprised to find that he's actually still alive. Starts asking the guy like, well, what what is it that has us captured here? And the dude's like, see for yourself because the people who are holding them come in Don't say a word, just two men walk in. One of them uses a key to remotely unlock the guy's cage. They put some food in his cage and then they shut everything up and lock it and leave. The lock is like on the other side of the room. So they can't eat. Sam and the other guy can't even reach it. Sam is like, oh my God, they're just people. And the other guy's like, yeah, what were you expecting? You know, (laughs) like, well... We have a long list of things that we were expecting before we were expecting it to be people. (laughs) Have you not seen this show, sir? So Sam is kind of relieved that it's just people because people have weaknesses. They're not like monsters that you need special weapons to kill or, or special skills or knowledge to kill. 
or to escape from. Every weapon works on them, and they're the easiest thing that Sam has ever hunted that he's had to kill. (laughs) So, aside from, like, the whole morality thing of it's people that he struggles with, so that's something to face. Sam goes back to attempting to break out of his cage by any means necessary while his the guy in the other cage is basically like accepted that he's you know the star of deliverance all of a sudden sam just refuses to give up because if he can get out they can defeat the people meanwhile dean and and the detective are in the car driving they're they're narrowing down the potential places where the camper van could have turned and gone like where they could have parked it and she's run his badge number and it came back stolen with a photograph of the officer who the badge belongs to and it's a black man and so clearly it's not Dean he makes excuses of what happened and then he goes on to totally lay it out on the line not his true identity but the fact that Yes, Sam is his responsibility, and he has to keep Sam safe, and he didn't know what else to do, and he apologizes for it, and of course, the cop doesn't trust him, but she has a story of her own. Eventually, she's like, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to arrest you, and he's like, I'll go with you, you know, as soon as we find Sam, I will go with you gladly, like, no, won't resist at all. He goes into his story of when they were young, he pretty much pulled him from a fire and Sam's all he's got. It's his responsibility. It's his job to look out for Sam. And you can see him go from the guy who stole a badge and was impersonating an officer who the sheriff completely lost any trust in Dean after lying to her so smoothly all day. But something about the way he talked about Sam earned her trust again she's like I'm, i may not believe your whole story here and i know you're still hiding stuff from me but she glances up at a photograph of her with another man pinned to the ceiling of her car she gets serious herself and is like okay we'll finish look following this lead and then i'm arresting you for impersonating an officer back in the cages Sam is pulling on a cable above his cage until it finally snaps. A piece of metal falls down into his cage. A few moments later, the other man's cage pops open, like the electronic lock on it just pops the door open. So he's able to get out and he's like, okay, I'm I'm making a run for it. I promise I'll come back and send help for you. I'm making a run for it. And Sam's like, does not trust this at all. He tell, encourages the guy to get back in his cage, that if he tries to make a run for it, it just feels too much like a trap. And it's true because as soon as the man is out the door, his cage relocks itself. Like he was let out on purpose. We all know how this goes. He starts running through the woods. He conveniently finds something he can use as a weapon and he starts running and running and running and he's closed in on by all the benders and he never gets to leave again he should have listened to sam honestly the next morning the sheriff and dean are out getting in the car to go back out on the road and he asks her why are you helping me at all here like 
why haven't you just locked me up? And she says, I know what it's like to feel responsible for someone because her brother disappeared the exact same way Sam did three years ago. And she looked for him and was unable to find him. So in a way, this is like her trying to figure out what what happened. Because, I mean, three years, you know, she probably lost hope a long time ago that they'd ever find her brother alive. But she might still be able to get an answer about what happened to him. Or if nothing else, she at least feels compassionate for Dean's current circumstance because she was there three years ago when her own brother disappeared. She gets it. That doesn't mean she's going to be really chill about working with Dean right up to the end, to her detriment, unfortunately. But when they do find a turnoff that seems like the last possible place where that camper could have disappeared to, and she pulls over, instead of allowing Dean to accompany her down this road, which, I mean, in her circumstance, I kind of get why she doesn't just let him walk with her because for all she knows he's one of the kidnappers and this is a trap like she has no idea what on earth is going on here with him and who he might really be if this isn't just some sort of bizarre not if not trap at least some bizarre game he's playing on her so in a way I can't blame her for leaving him handcuffed to her car while she walks down the creepy road I just, oh God, this is not the sort of circumstance you just want to wander into alone. These people tend to take men. So far, every every one of their victims that we've seen has been a fit, able-bodied man. So it's kind of like, mm, if all these men have disappeared and these people, the people who they're she's hunting may be responsible for that, maybe going in alone is probably a bad idea. It just seems like a bad idea to me. I'd rather have Dean, who at least has been relatable, if not moderately criminal, in my dealings with him. I would just so much rather have called for backup and not just gone it alone into that place. But hey, I'm also not a police officer trained to do that. But still, bad choices all around, just like Jenkins who fled his cage when Sam told him not to. When she handcuffs Dean to the car, that's when he finally says, I got to start carrying paper clips. And as far as we know, for the rest of the series, he's probably got a paper clip hidden on him somewhere in his clothes or in his shoes or whatever for the rest of the series, because him and Sam both have pulled paper clips or other things they could use as lock picks out of their clothing. It's just really amusing to watch him stretch and reach and to unscrew the little tiny antenna on the back of her car from the cell phone antenna. So, like, good thing it was back in the mid-2000s because cars don't have those sorts of antennas anymore. So the sheriff knocks on the front door. The girl who answers, Missy Bender, comes out. And I have to mention when we will see her again because... In this episode, she she's going to get her chance to torment Dean, and she's just creepy as. And we will see this actress again in season seven as Dean's Amazon daughter, Emma. Same actress. The sheriff gets clobbered 
put in a cage next to Sam. She is finally going to be aware of just how badly she actually really needed Dean to come with her. He wouldn't have probably knocked on the door. He would have gone looking for Sam more stealthily than she approached this entire situation. Oh, yes, let's just walk up to the front door of the suspected kidnappers, knock and present photographs, and ask questions about the kidnapped person. That's real sensible. I mean, not that most police officers would ever approach a situation by going, oh, yeah, let's prowl around in the barns and shit and see if we can find the missing people, like, stashed in cages. But (laughs) to Dean, that's, like, the go-to number one, because Dean still thinks this is, like, a monster case. He's still going under the assumption that this is some sort of monster that has taken Sam. He does not yet know that it's people. I always personally find it hilarious that when Dean is trying to pick the lock on his handcuffs, he's picking the cuff that's on his wrist, and he's got, like, seconds to spare, it it seems like, before the Bender brothers are there to get the sheriff's car because they clobbered her with the shovel. So they're going to put her in the cage too. But they come they come out to get her car so that it doesn't attract any more attention on the highway. And in those seconds or whatever that it seems like Dean has to finish getting his handcuff un- unlocked, when you look back, there's not a set of handcuffs hanging from the door. Like, he must have bothered to unlock the side that's also attached to the car. So it's kind of like, yeah, I understand why they didn't leave the handcuffs dangling. Because then the brothers would have been like, why did she have handcuffs hitched to her door handle? It would have been weird. But also the fact that Dean had been trying to unlock the one attached to his wrist, not the one attached to the doorknob. I always weird continuity error that bugged me (laughs) for no discernible reason. The Bender brothers are talking about how they've never seen their father so mad before because they'd never attracted the attention of the police before. They'd never, this was as close as they'd come to actually being caught at what they do. They had a police officer come right up to their doorstep Like, not even just finding their property, but, like, walking right up on their doorstep, knocking, asking to come in their house. Meanwhile, the sheriff comes back to consciousness in uh, the other cage and meets Sam Winchester. So Dean manages to do what they both should have done from the start, which is sneak around and find the the barn with all the cages and Sam and the the sheriff. Minor interesting little side note on this scene here is that when Dean walks into the barn, they had to cut the audio for some reason, but he's actually whistling the banjo theme from Deliverance as he walks in. And you can see his mouth moving or he's humming it or dee 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 dee. You know, you can see his mouth moving in in the scene, but for whatever reason, they had to cut the audio of it. They were probably couldn't get the rights to use it, or they decided it was not as appropriate for the scene as they thought it might be, and or whatever reason, but you can still see his mouth moving, and I think that's amusing. Sam manages to tell Dean, yeah, it's just people, and Sam does not use Dean's name. He maintains the illusion that it's his cousin 
in front of the sheriff, Dean even manages to maintain the illusion that they only deal with people. He says, our usual playmates, they have rules about how they have to behave and stuff, but people are just crazy. This episode is also one source of one of my favorite gifts is demons I get, people are crazy. And yeah, a lot of the supernatural beings that they deal with do have rules, or at least they have limitations and weaknesses, and they have other like requirements of how they hunt or feed or whatever. But people are just, they don't play by any of those rules. If they are doing something evil, they're just doing something evil. And it doesn't have to make sense, or it doesn't have to fit a pattern or follow rules or whatever. They just do what they want. Not that monsters couldn't, but most of them do hold to the standard of their species. So Dean discovers that the locking mechanism on the cages requires a key that is not present in the barn. So he goes breaking into the house to find it, which is awful. It's an awful house. I would hate to go inside there. I'm glad they're not my neighbors. So Dean breaks into the Bender's house and he finds their stash of trophies from their hunts pairs of glasses it looks like jars with maybe parts of these people in them and polaroid photos of all the victims like on display in some sort of weird disturbing altar type thing of their trophy case of hunted people so dean's exploring this house that i'm very sure that jerry wanick had a wonderful time decorating to be this awful he bumps into a wind chime made out of human bones there's a hip bone and a jaw bone and just he's just disgusted but he picks up a board that has a big spike in it and to use as a weapon because he hears somebody in the kitchen they're playing old-timey music dismembering the guy that they'd hunted the previous night or you don't see that but you see him sawing at stuff and using a butcher knife and just hacking away at something and you have to assume it was the dude that they killed which yuck dean's about to go on the attack with hit the guy with the spiky plank until he sees a box that has a bunch of keys in it one of which may be the key that he needs to break into free sam and the sheriff he tries to sneak in and find that but of course the disarming Missy Bender approaches him and instead of like treating her as one of the dangerous people here, Dean makes the mistake of treating her like a 12 year old girl or whatever she is to his detriment. She pins him to the wall with a knife and yells for help and her father and her brothers come running in and uh, the three of them do manage to overpower Dean. Poor Dean has mostly can always at least hold his own in a fight he does pretty well for a while but three guys who are used to hunting people they know how to fight unfortunately for dean when dean wakes up tied to a chair one of the brothers comments he's a fighter this one's gonna be fun to hunt and dean is like disgusted that these people are that's what they do they're just he just cannot believe that that's their whole thing. They hunt people. Their father is just like laughing, like 
taunting Dean like you ever kill. And Dean's like, you morons, like, you have no idea the things that he has killed. <sighs> it's just, you really feel like you, at this point in the show, when we, this is the 15th episode, we've seen 14 episodes where Dean has successfully fought and killed demons and all manner of supernatural threats, reapers. He's managed to fight off, you know, we saw him kill a rawhead. It's just amazing that these people have no concept of that. They have no concept of the supernatural. To them, they're the biggest predator on the block and they have no clue. And we, the audience, are sitting right there with Dean going, can you believe these assholes? Like, we are totally 100% with Dean in this moment, feeling exactly as he feels about these idiots and feeling in this moment with him. I kind of like that. Before they kill Dean, they got to know if there's any other cops potentially coming after them. Like, did the did the sheriff call for backup or do others know where they went? So he can't do away with Dean until he knows what the ongoing threat to his family is. And Dean's like, if I tell you, you promise not to make me into an ashtray. And <laughs> they of course, do not take kindly to Dean's humor, including the comment about it's not nice to marry your sister or because these folks are clearly, I mean, this episode is also evocative of the X-Files episode Home, where they had the isolated family that was sort of, mm, yeah, that, that same sort of creepy vibe to this family. When Dean makes the comment about marrying your sister, it's creepy because Missy turns around and looks up at one of her brothers. And it's just like, really, really, really? Like, is that how they all got here? Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Moving on now. So they're going to try and torture the information out of Dean and, this is obviously pre-Hell Dean. He doesn't know from torture yet, really. So the guy holds a hot poker up to Dean's face like he's going to poke him in the eye with it. And honestly, it's another thing I can't watch. Why is there so much eye horror on this show? But of course, Dean eventually capitulates, tells him, no, there's nobody else coming for you. And they ask Dean to pick which one they'll hunt. So Dean picks Sam for the one to hunt because... He trusts Sam to be able to defend himself. And the father, after after he puts Dean through that emotional torture of having to pick, the father's just like, okay, yeah, shoot him in the cage. Don't even let him out for a fair hunt. And then he says, kill the sheriff too. So no matter what Dean had picked there, they were going, you know, their orders were to kill both of them. The worst thing is when Paul gives the order to shoot Sam in the cage, he takes the key off from around his neck. So no matter how successful Dean would have been with the box of keys on the table, even if he had gotten out with all of those keys, he still wouldn't have been able to get Sam because the guy wore the key around his neck. So 
it, it was all a futile mission for Dean at that point. Rather than just shooting Sam through the closed bars of the cage, the guy unlocks the cage and opens the door, which gives Sam just enough of a gap to be able to get out and clobber the guy. Inside, from inside the house, though, Dean hears the gunshots and he gets very angry. He's like, if you so much as touch my brother, I'll kill you. I'll kill you all. He has no idea. As far as he knows, Sam could be dead already. And he's still tied to a chair. He's just going on the assumption that he has to to continue moving forward here that Sam is not dead yet and that he still has a chance. Sam finally gets the upper hand in the fight, gets the rifle, but unfortunately it's jammed. So these guys are supposedly great hunters or whatever, and they can't even maintain their weapons in a functional fashion. Great. So yet again, we get to sit here in judgment with Dean and now with Sam too against these guys hunting prowess. So Paul and the other brother go out because they're not getting a response from the other brother who went to shoot Sam. They arrive in the barn to find the brother locked in the cage and Sam and the sheriff escaped. They can't turn on the lights because Sam was smart enough to actually pull all the fuses. They can't unlock the cage because Sam still has the key. All they've got is weapons that they can use against Sam if they or the sheriff if they manage to actually spot either of them in the dark. They have no idea what's going on here. So Sam and the sheriff get the upper hand very easily in this fight, all things considered, to the point where Sam acts as a decoy and ducks just as the other brother shoots at him, Sam ducks, and he ends up shooting his own father in the in the shoulder but still like this is not good hunting behavior guys this is just shoddy work all around you are not the powerful hunters you think you are the sheriff has the gun on the father and tells sam to go to go get dean and she'll hold the guy and she questions him and asks him, you know, why, why would you do this? You, you killed my brother. Why did you do this? And he's just laughs and says, because it's fun. And she shoots him just, she's like, okay, let's see how fun that is and kills him. And she's got her revenge, but now she realizes she's kind of in the same boat as Sam and Dean here. Like, she did something incredibly illegal and she was going to arrest Dean for doing something similarly incredibly illegal and saw this whole disturbing mess and feels it on like a personal level, feels it on a like every level, understands how desperately Dean needed to get Sam back and how because she would have done the same thing for her own brother all she had left though was to get revenge by killing the person who killed him and it's not the same and it's not enough and it doesn't make anything better but she realizes as she comes out and see finds them they locked Missy up in the closet and escaped the house but the sheriff is just like 
yep, I'm going to make up a lie about this and tell a lie about this. So I know exactly the boat you were in when you came and started this whole situation, whatever, you know, she, she doesn't have the full picture of who the Winchesters are or how fucked up their lives are or what they really are into and how they were basically framed for murder. And yet she's put herself in their shoes as much as she possibly can in this episode, not by her own choice, but by everything she had to do to survive. And I think she kind of gets it and would probably describe them as maybe not the most savory people in the world. But I think if she ran into them again, she would have trusted them. If she had it to do over again, she would have taken Dean with her. She would have followed his lead, even though she's the trained police officer. I think she realizes that whatever these guys are, whoever they are, they're something above. They're not the criminals that the criminal justice system has framed them as. And I think that's really important to have set out this early in the series. And I think a great way to do it was through a, this is not a monster at all. This is just people. That was a great basis for that episode that these are the most monstrous possible people we can imagine who hunt other human beings for sport. And this is where they are as hunters. And about 10 miles above that is where Sam and Dean are. And yeah, even the police get it. Granted, she had a reason to want to trust them, that she was going to get answers about her own past, her own loss, her own brother. But she still didn't have to trust them. And she still didn't have to go along with any of this. And yet she did. Thank goodness. Because Sam and Dean are both safe. Unfortunately, she refuses to give them a ride and they're basically stuck hiking out of there on their own and it's miles and miles to town. So wherever the car got left, (laughs) downtown, and they're like 40 miles outside of town. So good luck to them. I hope they were able to at least hotwire a car or hitchhike or something. They, They look pretty bad for hitchhiking. They're all like bloody and messed up, so... Well, I hope they certainly had a very nice, pleasant walk. As Sam and Dean start hiking back to town, Dean's like, don't ever do that again. If you do, I'm not looking for you. And Sam's like, yeah, you will. So, yeah, we know. And then Sam taunts him about being taken down by a 13-year-old girl. The very first of the, we get beat up by a lot of girls in the show. Dean wasn't just beat up by a girl. I mean, it was a girl and three guys. It's not as bad as it sounds on the surface. But anyway, that's the end of this episode. The very first episode where the monsters are just people all around. There's no element of monstrosity anywhere in this episode. There are other episodes where the monsters are human, but there are some sort of supernatural elements to them like the usual suspects where it's a death omen but it's a person who the death omen ghost is warning people about there's family remains where it's very similar in themes to this episode with the incestuous family living in isolation and just 
child abuse kind of themes and it's just another one of those episodes that I wish I could skip but I'm promised to do all of them (laughs) so it's gonna probably be a very fast one thin man where it was entirely a made-up supernatural being but it was really just people that there's a few episodes like that throughout the series but overwhelmingly every episode of the series will involve the supernatural they don't usually hunt people to them hunting people is not even part of their job description it's what the human authorities are for not them they hunt things that human authorities don't even know exist let alone are capable of hunting and that will become a theme that that will stretch into the later part of the show as well like in season 14 they're still confronting that like would our lives be easier if if we told the truth about what we hunt like they'll even begin touching on this in like the ghost facers episodes where the ghost facers want to put this stuff out in the public and it's like what good is this going to do? People are not trained. Even the ghost facers themselves are just like incompetent when it comes to actually hunting stuff. They invent one of the fake monsters that happens, the thin man. They invent it just to have something to hunt. Even when they're trying to find ghosts, they still barely manage to find ghosts. And All of the hunts that they seem to find are the ones that are quote-unquote created. Like their very first one is a tulpa that was created because of their interference in the case. Like there would not have been a tulpa if they had not filmed it, the sigil, and brought it to the attention of millions of people who were then watching with great interest to see what happened because that's how a tulpa is made. So from their very first appearance on the show, knowing about the supernatural tends to be a bad thing. Anytime someone discovers it's real and believes it's real, if they do go out and try and hunt it, they don't fare very well. (laughs) Like if Sam and Dean hadn't been there to bail the ghost facers out every time they actually ran across something dangerous, they'd have been dead. The show tries to present the fact that Even people who do believe in the supernatural or know about the supernatural are either incapable of hunting it or would never choose to actually do that for their lives. And the people who would would be people like the benders who would go out and think it's a sport and innocent creatures and innocent people would probably be hurt or die because of people going, oh yeah, well, I thought he was a vampire, you know? So I just shot him. And, uh, like, that's not how you do, right? So, like, it's not like there's a problem, like, where there's millions of monsters and they're attacking thousands of people every day. And the hunting community is small, but that's all it really needs to be. It's just a tiny little force to police a small number of monsters. I mean, we we will learn that there are way more monsters than one would be led to believe on the surface, but that's possibly because the vast majority of them know how to, like, blend in. They don't cause trouble. They don't go out and slaughter people randomly. They they exist within their own port little 
sliver of society where they can hide, where they can blend in, where they can meet their needs without, you know, slaughtering masses of the public. (sighs) Okay. I don't even know what else to say about this one. There's just really not that much else to say. And I've kind of stretched this one way further than I even expected to be able to. So I suppose all that's left now is to say that next week's episode will be season one, episode 16, Shadow, where we'll finally get to see John Winchester again. And Meg. We'll find out how they've all been lured in back into the story here. So at least we're going back to Myth Arc next week. We'll be getting a new monster that we will never see again. The Deva Demons. This is the only episode they ever appear in. Any hoodle. I guess I'll see y'all again next week. Until then, you can find me on Tumblr at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. Or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. And the Discord server is still open. We did have quite a lovely discussion about the differences between the script of last week's episode and the aired version. There weren't all that many differences for considering, but it was still fun to talk about what what did differ and the process of how a script evolves. So we had fun talking about that. So if you'd like to join us on the Discord server, I don't know what we would talk about this week, just maybe like better car maintenance, but just drop me a line and I will send you a link. Speaking of car maintenance, all this weird, super crappy car stuff in this episode reminds me I need to, I need to schedule car maintenance and just get my front brakes replaced. I mean, they're not like making horrible noises like that, but <laughs> where indicates that it's time to replace my brakes. And since I'm not the vendors, I'm actually going to do that. <laughs> drive safely. I guess, why, why am I trying to end so many episodes lately with drive safely? God, ever since the monster truck episode. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs>